not know what circumstances of life the people here come to you in, but we know that your word is sufficient for everything that we could possibly go through. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would enable us to see you truly, to see your grace and mercy dispense to us even now through your word, that you would comfort hearts, that you would relieve us, give us hope, give us joy and thanksgiving. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to take whatever may be troubling us and bring it before you. By the end of this service, Lord, that uh, we'd be ready to fellowship, encourage one another, and go on through the next week with hope. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible's not filled with happy people, is it? People are not happy all the time. In fact, trials are more the norm. And you see a lot of people with anguished souls. King David once said to the Lord, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden that's too heavy to bear. Elijah said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. Job said things like this, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. He said, terrors overwhelm me. My life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. It was predicted that Christ himself would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he said to his disciples, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground. And he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. It's in Mark 14. We read from the Psalms that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We might think of the Apostle Paul as a great strong man of faith, but he even said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, and listen to these words, powerful. It says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Do you ever feel that way? Are you ever overwhelmed, burdened? You had enough. 
You ever in turmoil, lacking peace, you hate life, maybe you're bitter, you've, you fear, you have sorrow, you're grieved, you're brokenhearted, you're crushed in spirit. Well, if that is you today, God has a song for you. It is here in Psalm 42, the prescript says this, for the choir director, so it's a song, a maskil of the sons of Korah. I want you to notice two things about just this little introduction. First, the sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with Israel's music ministry. They're kind of like uh, Hayward and the band here. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verse 19 describes them in action. It says, The Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So there is biblical precedent for standing and singing very loud. So the heading here implies that this psalm was probably used in public worship and it was sung. <clears throat> and the psalms are very poetic, poetic songs. God made us not just as thinking beings, but as emotional ones as well. Often I think about music and I talk with my, my kids about just we, we like all different types of music and uh, sometimes we have, you have to be reminded that a song isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily uh, chronological. It doesn't necessarily tell an order. It doesn't necessarily even that way when you listen to the radio. <laughs> but God's songs, while they're not necessarily chronological or tell a story, they do make sense great sense because they're packed with wisdom. He created us so that poetry and singing would resonate with our emotions. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You can see this by the popularity of music in every country and every culture. We can see that it's part of the image of God in man. And there's music for any and every mood that you might feel. When I've got to accomplish something and I need a lot of strength and energy to do it, I'll put on some kind of driving music. Something that moves me along. If I'm trying to read a, a difficult book, I'll put on some classical music. If I need to be restored in my soul, I'll put on some Christian music that uh, is really thoughtful and just an encouraging melody. There are ways in which the words affect us and there are ways in which the music itself affects us. <clears throat> but God's music and poetry is the best because it is perfectly designed. These psalms are designed to help you communicate with God and to communicate about the emotions that you are feeling through whatever you're going through. And they're designed to shape your thought process 
so that you can handle your emotions biblically in a way that is pleasing to God. So you, you find the psalmist a lot of times in one emotional state at the beginning of a psalm, and then at the end, he is quite changed. The second thing to notice in the heading of this psalm is that it is called a maskil. It's not clear what that word means. That's why they just transliterate it instead of translating it. But it does share the same stem as a Hebrew verb that means to make someone wise or to instruct. So perhaps that is what it is for. And it's designating the psalm as not only a song for our emotions, but instruction for dealing with it properly. The psalms are clearly intended to instruct us. So this song of, of poetry is going to appeal to our emotions today, but it is intended to instruct us about how to shape our emotional response. When we immerse ourselves in psalms, we're, we're thinking and feeling with God. That's what I'm praying that this sermon will help you to do today, to think and Deal with God. And my desire is that you will find hope in God in three circumstances that the psalmist is going to cover. When you feel like God is distant, or you're overwhelmed with your circumstances, or you feel like God has forgotten you. So first of all, I want you to be able to hope in God when he feels distant. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Before I read a couple of those, let me just ask you, do you ever feel that God is distant? That's the way this particular Israelite feels. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The picture here is of what is named a fallow deer in that culture, in that area. But it is in drought conditions. Usually, she is able to go down into the deepest part of the valley where there is a creek bed and there is flowing water that would soothe and quench her thirst. But today, the, the water is not running there's nothing to be found, only a dry creek bed. And she craves and desires and longs for something to slake her thirst. And the writer here likens himself to this desperate animal. But he's in a spiritual, emotional, circumstantial drought. It affects not his tongue but his soul. The soul is that center of our being, that, that core, that spiritual core, the immaterial part of us, where the feelings and the perceptions are transmitted. It's a spiritual place where all of your longings and your cravings and your desires arise and reside. 
He craves and thirsts for God. We don't know fully what his circumstances are, and we're going to see some hints to it. But we do know that he is being deeply impacted to the point where he experiences prolonged and profound sorrow. He's spiritually hungry as well. So like in the world, sometimes you're, you're out there at your job perhaps and everybody knows that you're a Christian and then they see these bad things happening to you and then they, they taunt you, they mock, they ridicule. Well, where's your God now? And he probably is not literally hearing them say, where is your God every moment of every day? But that's not what happens, is it? We get the voices in our head. And we say, we can hear these voices, where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? Isn't that what happens in our circumstances? You remember what people have said. The pressures, the ridicule, the mocking, the insults. You see, when people say hurtful things... These become voices in our head that we can't get rid of. It plays over and over. The feeling of distant relationship with God can be caused by many things. It's usually because of some kind of circumstance that you're going through and you're praying, you're pouring out your heart to God, the sorrows at heart, the abandonment of being forgotten by God, the being in this tumultuous wave after wave of problems. But within it, there are many hidden gems of wisdom to help us to hope in God. It begins by talking to ourselves. Now, that's not usually a good thing. It really should be if we understand it biblically, but... They say you're kind of crazy if you start hearing, you start answering yourself. But notice the psalmist does this in verse 5. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? We should follow his pattern. We should ask ourselves these kinds of questions. When you're feeling disturbed, when you're feeling downcast, ask yourself why. Why am I really reacting this way? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, put it this way. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You're listening to all those voices instead of talking to yourself, instructing yourself, preaching to yourself, exhorting yourself, encouraging yourself, rebuking yourself, correcting yourself. That's what we should be engaged in doing. He continues, he says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? 
yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42, he says, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. It's important that you have this conversation with your soul. And you should first acknowledge how you feel. In, in his case, he was in despair and disturbed. I found it fascinating to look up the word translated despair in a Hebrew lexicon. And it gives the definition to appear to be dissolved away. You get the image of dropping a cube of sugar into some hot coffee. That's how he feels. <laughs> I've just been dissolved away. And the synonym for the word translated disturbed here, several synonyms would be tumultuous, tumultuous turbulent, or moaning. Pretty dramatic, isn't it? Dissolving away, moaning. Your self-conversation begins with just being honest with how you feel. Just being honest before God and with yourself. And one thing that is amazing here is that even though it sounds pretty bad, the psalmist finds himself still desiring God. No matter how bad it seems as you rehearse how you feel, it's encouraging to suddenly realize, but I still care about God. I still care about my relationship with him. You, you wouldn't feel this distance from him if you didn't care about it. If, and the writer here, we see he thirsts for God. There is a huge difference between giving up on God and thirsting for him. And the good thing the psalmist is doing is thirsting for God. What makes this so beautiful and so crucial for us is that he's not thirsting mainly for relief from his circumstances. He's not thirsting mainly for escape from his enemies or for their destruction. But more important than any of that is that he's thirsting for God himself. When you desire God, that's a good thing. That means your faith is real. Now next, as we're struggling in this way, as we're working through this, remember that your God is not dead. He's living. Notice verse 2. The psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God... For the living God. There's a humorous anecdote when uh, Martin Luther was so depressed that none of his wife Kate's counsel would help him. So she put on a black dress. Luther noticed it and he asked, 
Are you going to a funeral? No, Kate replied. But since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. Luther got the message. He soon recovered. Hope in that. Jesus did die on the cross, right? But he is alive, isn't he? And not only is he alive, he purchased your pardon, you're forgiven, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes as a great high priest for you in your time of need. He sympathizes with your weakness. This is a psalm all about weakness. And the Hebrews tells us that he sympathizes in your weaknesses. And he is there ready to give grace and help in your time of need. And you can tell yourself that even if this trial doesn't end and I don't see God act in this circumstance... There is a day coming when it will all end and I will see him. In verse 2, he asks about this. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? In one sense, he's saying, when will this isolation be over? When will this trial end? But there is a more hopeful thing. In this question, there is always and also the realization that he's actually someday going to see God. One day we will see him, people. And when we see him, the Bible tells us that we will be like him and we will be with him and we will experience everlasting joy in his presence. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And what he's going to do is described in Revelation 21, verse 4, Hope for every heart that is going through suffering. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And it's good to remind yourself of good things when you're going through trials. In verse 4 he says, These things, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. You have this, this pouring out of his soul within him. He is, he's rehearsing. He's going over things. He's, he's thinking. And he remembers this. It goes on to say, For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. This describes the, the worship of Israel. They're going up to Jerusalem they're going up to the tabernacle to celebrate one of their festivals. One of the main aids, get this, one of the main aids that God gives you for strength and perseverance in trials is the church of God. The body of Christ, the people who are around you, the people you fellowship with, true believers. 
And Satan wants to isolate you like a part of the body that's been cut off and left to die. But you have to remind yourselves that God never meant for you to go through whatever you're going through alone. He made us people who need people. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters and husbands and wives. And spiritually, we have fathers in the faith, right? We have our physical husbands and wives and children and brothers and sisters. Some of you have that in this body here as well. But even if you don't have any of those, you have a spiritual family. And we need to be close. We need to be looking out for one another and, and knowing what each other are going through. And we shouldn't be an island. There's strength in numbers, isn't there? God wants you worshiping. He wants you coming together and fellowshipping I like where it says there was a multitude going up to the house of God. And he tells us what is there in the multitude when they go to worship God. He says that there is joy and there is thanksgiving. This morning when you sang all these songs, you, you had this experience or you had the opportunity at least to experience joy and thanksgiving because of all the truths you sang out to God and to one another like our songs are supposed to be. Tell yourself, part of your counsel to yourself, when, when you feel like you want to be isolated, when you feel like you don't even want to go to church, when, when you feel like nobody cares, tell yourself you need the body of Christ. You need to be with people. You need to be with people who are joyful and full of thanksgiving. Don't take these times together lightly. What we do here through prayer and singing and listening to the word of God is a real transaction. It's a real encounter with God. You need corporate worship to preserve your faith, to persevere you, and to be reminded of things to remember. The good things. There are many at home right now that wish they could be here. So if you're able, you should come. It is a privilege. Well, the psalmist ends section 1 through 5 and verse 5, and he's fighting for hope. He tells himself this. He says, he says, self, I know you're saying all this to me. You're you're saying that I should be despairing, I should be downcast, I should be discouraged, but I'm going to tell you, self, hope in God. For I shall again praise you for the help of his presence. That's a statement of great confidence and resolve, isn't it? Even though he feels God is far off, he reminds himself of what he knows. And that's why it's important to be in the word of God. And if we work backwards in this verse, first he knows that God is present. He says, for the help of his presence. Another psalm, Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. 
you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And second in this verse, he knows that if God is present, then God will help for the help of his presence, for I shall again praise him. He's, he's anticipating that if he hopes in God, because God is present with him, he is going to have something to thank God about. He's going to have something to praise God about. You should anticipate that in your trials. How is God going to work it out? Well, I don't know, but he's going to do something. God has promised to be your helper. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, He himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. That's a promise. And he says, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And third, in this verse the psalmist expects that he will one day praise God for that help that he brings. In that, there's great hope. So he can say, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So when God feels distant, the main thing we must learn to do is preach tr truth to ourselves. And particularly, those of us on this side of the cross can preach the gospel truths to ourselves. Let me paraphrase a little of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 35. Listen, self. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring a charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? No one. Now this Israelite described his trial in the sense of distance from God. But he has two more ways to describe his trials. And they are tied up to his feelings. And the design here is to help you if you feel this way. The second circumstance teaches us to have hope when you feel like you're drowning. You ever felt like you're drowning in your trial? Listen to how he describes this trial this time. Again, he first acknowledges his feelings. Verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. And the scene has changed. Before it was drought conditions. The deer is dressed desperately looking for water. But now listen, he says, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan. That's a river, right? And the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Mount Hermon is a place where he could look out and he could see the Jordan River Valley. Most of the time it would be lush and green. Water running through it. Rivers rushing over boulders and down waterfalls. 
You might think that such beautiful, picturesque scenery would provide comfort to him, but no. He manages to see himself under the water, under the falls, out in the lake during a storm, breakers and waves rolling over him time and again. It's a picture of drowning. He says in verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. It's amazing how we can turn things in our trials, isn't it? We become Eeyore, Pooh's friend. If somebody says, what a beautiful day, we'll say, I'm sure it's going to rain. Have trials like waves crashed over you? Do they ceaselessly overwhelm you? Sometimes they are like the waves of the ocean. I love to go down to the ocean here. We have a beautiful environment around here. Every time we go over that bridge, my wife says, we live in paradise. Another day in paradise. And the ocean, though, has strong waves sometimes that just keep on coming. And if you're there in the surf, you can get pounded. Circumstances are like that a lot of times. It seems like if anything can go wrong, it, it will. But if we look closely into this, we see another hidden gem of hope. Notice that he recognizes that they are God's breakers and waterfalls. Deep causes deep at the sound of your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves have rolled over me. You might say, well, how does that help me? Well, there's, there's real hope in knowing that God is in control. That even during your hardest trials, you know that God is ruling in his sovereignty. In other words, all of these crashing and tumultuous and oppressing and discouraging circumstances are the waves of God. That's a crucial truth, brothers and sisters. God is the God who, according to Joseph, men can mean evil, but God can mean it for good. He is the God who works all things after the counsel of his will. He, he causes all things to work together for good, ultimately to make us more like Jesus for our sanctification. These are truths that will help keep you stable in your trials. Embracing the sovereignty of God keeps you from capsizing in the tumult of your emotions. Many of you have learned this more deeply than I have because the waves have broken over your lives in a profound, serious way. You've learned deeply that it's no relief to say that God does not rule the wind and the waves. I mean, what relief would that be? If everything was just out of control, helter-skelter, and there were no answers. If you're going through trials, it's much more encouraging to know that God is in control of them, even as hard as they are. There's greater hope in affirming God's sovereign 
not control, just control, but love. God's sovereign love for his people during trials. And that's what this psalm teaches us to do in verse 8. It says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. That is an expression of hope and confidence in God. One thing you can be absolutely sure of, no matter how dark it may seem in your trial, the sovereign Lord will command. That's a strong word, right? He will command his loving kindness. He will command his loving kindness to be shown and displayed to you in your trial. There will be some expression of that love, some manifestation of his love. Look for it. There will be some manifestation of his kindness and his faithfulness to you. And it will be as apparent as the daylight. He says he will command his loving kindness in the daytime. In counseling your own soul, tell yourself to look for those blessings even in trials. I know things are hard. What are the blessings, though? What is God doing in your trial? That's what these psalms are for, right? To sing to God, to sing about God, to shape and express your emotions, and to be taught how to live in and through those circumstances of life with hope, thanksgiving, joy, and praise. You can do that. I love that phrase at the end of verse 8. He says, a prayer to the God of my life. A prayer to the God of my life. It reminds us that although we can have confidence in our sovereign God's care and joy, we need to pray. First of all, he says, a prayer to the God of my life. But my favorite part is the end of that, the God of my life. I meditated on those words about all that it could possibly mean. And while I may not know precisely what it means, I found very many encouraging thoughts and possibilities. It would certainly be true that God is the source of his life. God is the living God, and all life derives its essence in life from him. It could be that in this circumstance, he is confident that his life is in God's hands, like he has spoken of, which would be another way of saying that God is sovereign over his life. Or perhaps it's similar, and I like to think this, similar to the Apostle Paul, what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It could be that in his circumstances, he sees himself as for God. God is my life. For me to live is God, and to die is gain. When will I come to see you, he said earlier. And on this side of the cross, we say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
the primary purpose for my life and for me to be fulfilled in this life is for Christ. Sometimes we need to get down to the bare facts of it, to the lowest common denominator of everything when we're going through those trials. What are we really wanting? What are we really wanting to see? Why do we want relief so much? If our goal is that no matter what happens, we want Christ to be glorified, we're willing to go through an awful lot. And if we believe that Christ will be glorified and we live for him, then life becomes simple. Now in verses 9 through 11, we find a third and final circumstance. You can hope in God when you feel forgotten. Sometimes trials seem that God is distant. Sometimes they seem like we're drowning. And sometimes we feel forgotten. He says in verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then he describes an internal pressure. He says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then there's the external pressure. Verse 10, he says, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? There's that ridicule and mocking again. And words hurt. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. He calls this feeling from what they say a shattering of the bones. Have you ever felt that hurt from somebody else, what you've said? It, just, it, can, it can just break you apart. And one thing to take note of here is that it's okay to wonder why. And it's important to ask God why, to have that conversation with Him. We may never know what the real reason is, but we can ask Him. And then you, as you talk to God, it helps you to process it. We know it can't be, though, that a sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent God has forgotten, right? But it feels that way sometimes. Why aren't my circumstances changing? Why am I not getting an answer here? And this again results in internal emotional turmoil. Verse 11, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Again, he's, he's dealing with this self-confrontation, this Self-counsel. There's much repetition here, but let me point to you, or point you to, one more hidden gem for hope. It's in verse 9. He says, I will say to God, my rock. That is a great metaphor to have for God 
in your life. That he is your rock. What does this mean? Well, other scriptures expand on this theme and they teach us that God being your rock means at least two things. It means that he is your refuge and your protection. It's like a fortress where you can hide and go there for refreshment and be safe. In Psalm 71 verse 3, the New International Version says, Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. With God is your safe place. With God is your fortress. You can trust God with with your fears and your concerns and your anxieties and all of your emotions because you're safe with Him. And since God is also the one who can be trusted, this means that you never have to hide anything from Him. You can always go directly to God, no matter what you're feeling, tell Him what your emotions are, and you can go to His Word, and He can provide you with answers like this. If you ever feel overwhelmed or threatened, you can run to the rock. You can find a place of refuge and safety. The other good thing about a refuge is if you're on the run, it's a place to rest. I just love these metaphors, these pictures of of getting with God, getting behind Him or figuratively being within Him and being protected and safe and secured and resting, being at peace. If you're stressed, you can go to this rock and find relief. If you're tired, you can go to the rock and find rest and refreshment. So we've seen that life can cause you to feel distant from God. It can cause you to feel like you're being rolled by the waves. It can cause you to feel you've been forgotten. Yet in this psalm, we have seen many hidden gems that aid us in facing these feelings. Your God is the living God, isn't he? He is with you. He loves you. He's sovereign over all of your life. He's your rock. He is your life. He wants you to talk to him and he will answer in his time and he will give you something to praise him for. Meanwhile, he has given you the church as your family, a family of people to come alongside of you and to encourage you and to get you to give thanks and have joy and praise the Lord. And one day... You're going to see him. You're going to be like him. You're going to be with him. And so we can end the psalm like the psalmist does. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. That is my counsel to you. Let him be the lifter of your head. Let him be the one that changes your face and gives you that smile of joy, hope in God. Let's pray.
God, we, we thank you that you want to hear from us. That you care about us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the peace that you give. Thank you for being our refuge and our strength. A, a very present help in times of trouble. A, a mighty tower. A stronghold. Thank you for being our relief and our refuge and our rest in the midst of the storms of life. I pray that these people before me and including myself, that we would hope in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.